Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I got to start this with an apology uh, to Jeff Walker, who's our interviewee. We recorded this a long time ago, like many months ago. And I think Jeff gave up hope that we're ever going to post it. Anyway, Jeff or Jeffrey, if you want to be formal, is a, a fascinating guy. And a little little story about Jeff. When uh, when I first started meditating eight or nine years ago, my younger brother, who's a venture capitalist, was making fun of me relentlessly um, and calling me a weirdo and buying me Eckhart Tolle calendars. Uh, then I told him that this guy Jeff Walker was meditating and his whole attitude shifted. Jeff Walker is a legendary venture capitalist, uh, somebody my brother had heard of. He's uh, formerly of J.P. Morgan and, and a, an incredibly successful dude who, as you'll hear in this interview, got into meditation a long time ago and has now become a big figure in trying to scale mindfulness up to something that is widely utilized by all sorts of people. Uh, he is a businessman, a meditator, a philanthropist, and an all-around uh, awesome guy. Here's Jeffrey Walker. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I think I might have mentioned this to you before, but you, I picked up a little trick from you that has now infiltrated the format of this podcast, Which because we were having a group dinner one night, and you went around the table and asked everybody to explain how they got into meditation. And I realized watching that, that that basically is a way for people to tell the story of their lives, often pretty succinctly, sometimes not so much. So I'll throw the question right back at you. How did you get into meditation? Great. Um, I love those stories because they all give you a perspective on the individual, right? So I, uh, 1973, late one night, University of Virginia, first year, probably had a beer or two. <laughs> yeah, that's my guess. Walked down this dell. Um, so it was this large open field. And I had been uh, in psychology class learning about uh, whole body relaxation. I'd read Carlos Castaneda, which some people might remember, um, who was a mystic, and uh, talking about... The, with the Don Juan Don book. Juan yeah, books, yeah. exactly. So I said, I'm going to try something. And so I sat down in the field with the moon and was quiet and started doing um, just sitting with body relaxation and went somewhere that was noticeably different and it was a quiet place wasn't probably compared to most descriptions of of meditation today exactly perfect but it was something that I was noticing that was different and quiet and sitting and, and I liked sitting I liked and it reminded me of so that was my first meditation but it reminded me of playing music and so I had started playing music in seventh grade um, with others and that ensemble effect that flow state that being present in uh, when I was playing in an ensemble it reminded me of that same feeling I said what is that I'm here by myself but I'm kind of feeling like that flow so um, I was hooked I was hooked after that and kind of said what is going on here started reading Joseph Campbell and thinking about you know comparative religions and Kept practicing off and on and reading and trying to figure out what this is. And again, this was 43 years ago. So it was like, this is, was different. Um, and started, you know, thinking about, is this all crystal people's things and too strange and <laughs> who who's doing what where? And um, then over the years, after exploring 
Unitarianism and Buddhism and, and others started saying, you know, there is a practice. And so I developed a practice over that uh, early period, um, probably a bit more Buddhist-oriented. I got involved. Uh, a friend of mine, Deepak Chopra, introduced me to um, uh, meditation with a mantra. So it's a Hindu-based practice, and I've used some of that. And kind of where I've come out, long answer to a short question, is that uh, it all kind of works in different times and different places. And for me, I'm more of an eclectic uh, practitioner, and I'm really interested in learning other practices and what other people are doing and, and using, and that it's probably not all just about mindfulness. It's all about different practices using these uh, mind training tools to concentrate better, to work better in teams, to be more compassionate, to be more aware and open to other ideas, be more creative, and starting realizing, ah, I just the more the deeper I go, the more interesting it gets. And uh, finding others to have this conversation with, like yourself, is my bliss. That's awesome. I mean, you are really one of the more ecumenical dudes I know in terms of practice, which we'll talk about in a second. But just staying with your chronology for a second, you went off and became a pretty successful venture capitalist, J.P. Morgan, if I recall correctly. Yep. And so were you open in that environment um, as you were coming up the ranks in the 80s, 90s, the aughts, about uh, your uh, spiritual excursions, or did you have to stay in the closet? No, I was always pretty open. I was always a strange dude um, <laughs> uh, because then luckily as a venture capital private equity guy, you were – it was okay to be that because, honestly, we made some money um, for the organizations, and they kind of said, oh, okay, whatever. Um, but I kept focusing on that feeling of ensemble. And so we, for example, from the original days at Chemical Bank, after eight mergers, it became J.P. Morgan. But we had a partnership and a real one. And so where we as a team worked together and tried to say, how do we work with our CEOs that we invested in our companies as true partners? Now – uh, and they all knew I was into mindfulness and mindful approach probably uh, 15, 17 years ago. We set a course up at University of Virginia called Mindful Leadership, and it was very strange to have this course. But I happened to be very active in the University of Virginia and the business school in particular and kind of said, I want to play with this idea, and we did. We brought kids from all over the campus, and so people knew that I was – interested in talking about these kinds of questions. But it, it, it evolved into ethics. It evolved, evolved into, you know, spiritual center, playing with others. But it doesn't mean I wasn't – at times, I bet you the people thought I was scary. That's my guess. Um, my, my kids' friends uh, called me the intimidator at times. But there were times when your kids come home and you're going to be tough and say, you know, these, these are certain rules that you have to follow. So um, I probably got uh, a little bit softer over time. At J.P. Morgan, I taught meditation. To the, um, to the fellow executives or to, to the your fellow team? executives? Really? And, and, so, and they signed even they were willing to do this? Because you were way ahead of the Well, my, weird, curve my, my, my group was some were open, some were not so much. They kind of did it, and you have to be careful as, a, as a, a senior exec telling people what to do. You can't do that, obviously, but you can ask them to try things. Um, and say this is something that's interesting to try. So in our groups retreats, we do yoga, which is a form of contemplation meditation, um, obviously. 
And some would tell you, hey, that's really interesting. I'm going to do more of that. Or I have a practice, and, gee, my wife always did that. Gee, I'm going to do that too. Um, or my boss is doing it, so maybe I should at least pretend to well, be Well, <laughs> I had people tell me that, you know, over time as I continued to do a practice that you're different. You're different than other people in a good way, I hope, but that I've seen you change personally over time. And my wife has said that as well. And I hope for, and, and for the better. Um, God, we all need to continue to work on our tools um, because it's always going to be maybe more than 10% happier, but 15%, yeah. you know, how do you get into joy and joy states? But being able to take that breath, being able to not respond quickly is a real power in all worlds, but the business world in particular. And so we taught that. We said to young associates coming out of business school, listen, you know what you know. You don't know what the other guy knows. And isn't it an advantage to be able to hear from them what they're thinking? And isn't that an advantage in a negotiation? Isn't that an advantage to be able to notice if you're being quiet, another person, and what they're experiencing? And then when you're trying to work with them in partnership, when you're investing with them as CEOs, you want them to consider you a partner. And it doesn't mean that you're going to do what they want or they're, you're going to do what they want, um, but that you work together for a common goal and what that is. And to do that, you have to be able to settle and you have to be able to listen well. And you have to be able to be open, you know, in, in, in Buddhist philosophy, right, on beginner's mind. You have to create your opportunity to bring yourself back to that base so that you can rebuild a solution together and have people really believe they're working with you. And so people started seeing, hmm, these are kind of tools that I'm trying to work on myself to be successful in the business world. Maybe I ought to listen about this. Maybe I ought to think about this one. And you're right. There is, you know, hey, he's doing that one. And then we started finding other financial types coming out of the closet. Um, we started finding uh, friends of mine who were running major hedge funds all had a practice. Well, why? Because it allowed them to have a competitive advantage. And is that a good thing to say, oh, we're just going to do this to have a competitive advantage? I don't think so. But I think experiencing it, starting to take that breath, starting to listen to others, bleeds over to your whole life and starts making people potentially more interesting and people like kind of I want to hang with. Um, so that's a good thing. The You touched on this, but th there are some critiques of what some people call corporate mindfulness or mic mindfulness, you know, bringing this, you know, distilling certain parts of ancient traditions, bringing them into the workplace and saying, hey, this can make you, give you a competitive advantage. This can make you more focused. This can make you more productive. Um, and yet we have this capitalist system that some, some people have very serious c complaints about, you know, that it's not doing great things for the planet, that there's an enormous amount of income inequality, um, that it, it, it along those lines can work better for the people at the top than the bottom, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that what we're seeing in terms of this practice being brought into the corporate world, do you think it is going to help change the system from within, or is it just a, a little uh, add-on that people uh, embrace to make them better workers within the system? Sure. Big big question. 
Um, Take as much time as you want. And uh, I, uh, I chair the Contemplative Science Center at the University of Virginia, and we have 11 schools that are working together to bring these tools to everything from nursing to medicine to education. We've got major projects uh, around education, but also business. And the idea is that these tools can lower suffering. And there's a lot of people suffering in my experience in all the world um, from doing global development, which I've been working on for 10 years or, or others. But in the business world, there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of suffering. And if you can get people to experience some tools that they can pick from, you're not telling them the answers and you have to really avoid and Mark Bertolini at Aetna, uh, I know, believes this, saying he can't, it can't be what he wants. It can't be what I think. It has to be a set of tools you make available to say, try these, see what happens. And so I was, I was at breakfast um, two weeks ago with a CEO of um, a major um, international bank uh, here in New York, and he was talking about mindfulness. And I'd been teaching uh, off and on some of his staff um, and and uh, what these tools can be and how to mentor using some of these tools. And he kind of was mm, still listening but not convinced. And we started talking about what his daughter was doing and she's into global development. Uh, and then he, they started, I said, well, what, you know, what do you, what are the issues? I said, how are you sleeping? He goes, oh, I'm taking Ambien, I'm a lot of stress. And I said, okay. Do you know there's some books you can look at? You know, there's some practices you can do. And he leaned forward and he goes, can you give me those? And uh, I think I've had three emails back and forth between him in the last two weeks. Kind of like, okay, I read those. That was really interesting. Um, It made it real. And saying, you know, you could probably sleep more easily and maybe you can decrease some of the ambient you're using. And maybe that's a good place to start. And I find that when you go down to that personal, actionable place, then he kind of comes back going, this is really interesting. I can see why I'd like to support it. And I don't know exactly what I'm doing. And I'll get my HR person to help me out to think about that. And there's more things you can do? I said, yeah, there's actually really great evidence against depression. And so, do you know, there's a lot of people in your business that are depressed. And wouldn't it be good to get it early? as opposed to waiting until it gets tough or it's impairing their families because, you know, they're going to be better employees and they're going to be better partners with you if you use some of these tools. But who knows? It it might be yoga. It might be tai chi. It might be be open to all those potential ideas. So I think, you know, in this world of there's no quick fixes, even though everybody tries to sell some, um, this is an opportunity to go down that path of opening up other tools that allow people to address some of their suffering without looking for the silver bullet solution of a drug or one doctor that has necessarily the answer or one teacher. You know, you and I love Sharon Salzberg, and she's awesome um, and, and really talks talking about loving kindness and teamwork, et cetera. But it's not all the answers to all things. Um, you know, let's go talk to Matthew Ricard. You know, let's go talk about Christian thought. You know, let's talk about, you know, all these larger issues, you know, with guys like David Brooks and others are trying to think about. And so these are just pieces of the puzzle and working on them with people like yourself and our friends um, in the area that's saying this is this puzzle we're all just finding little pieces of and we're showing each other this cool piece I just found. Isn't this great? Um, that's what 
it works really well in business. It works really well in healthcare. It works really well in education. And I think that's what gives me hope is that we're all now asking that question about how it should work as opposed to that's weird, keep it out. I haven't heard that almost anywhere. I want to avoid, I want to write an article at some point about the mindless pursuit of mindfulness because it means almost everything and nothing. Mm. And so how do we start peeling that away, peeling the onion away, saying, how are you sleeping? How are you feeling? Well, there's some things you could probably practice. And there's this encyclopedia we're thinking about doing an encyclopedia of uh, contemplative practices. And, you know, if you're trying to work on this one issue, you may want to try this. You may want to try a retreat. You may want to try reading a book. You may want to try sitting in a group of people, you know, a sangha equivalent of, of a group, you know, that can reinforce and help you, a community. Use social media to kind of pull that together. Or you might, you know, actually want to um, use that with your family. Use that in, in the way you're working with your, your spouse and the way you're communicating with them. See, these are all, all tons of different opportunities. And let's start sharing that knowledge you know, with each of us, I just would stay, in my experience, um, I'm more eclectic as you say, I always stay away from the person that has the answer. You know, it kinda, I kind of run from those people a little bit. Or, gee, just read my book and it'll be great and, and follow my practice, which is a little counter to an Eastern tradition of, you know, listening to a master who's been taught by a master who's been taught by a master and, and going through that whole traditional hierarchy. I think we're today actually able to starting to start to consume more sources, but then we all have to hold ourselves accountable a little more for evaluating it and how it's working with ourselves, what we're trying to sell everybody else. You know, we uh, 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 we have this a project in Louisville, Kentucky called the Contemplative Schools Project, and uh, we've raised a lot of money for bringing uh, contemplation to right now eight thousand kids, K through five. And con- contemplation defined as mindfulness, yoga, social-emotional learning, and health. And multiple times a week, them sitting and listening and thinking about those kind of questions and having teachers that are trained on how to do that. But we didn't adopt one program. We didn't adopt one nonprofit's thought. We didn't take transcendental meditation and quick time and say, okay, that's the answer, we're done. We didn't take mind up and say, that's the answer, and we're done. We didn't take social. He said, you're going, let's work with the local school system and figure out what works for them. And the social-emotional strategy, building a foundation so that kids in the inner city and others understand how to manage stress, how to listen better in class, how teachers are able to teach those skills, maybe them being able to pick from all these different tools and build something that was uniquely theirs is a better strategy, and they have. They've had great results so far. We have Penn State, we have University of Wisconsin auditing us and coming through and making sure the measures of success are, are, um, are being achieved. But they've also promised up to the mayor level and up to the, the school superintendent level that they will make this available to all the schools. So after about two more years, when we finish it, it'll go to 25,000 kids. And so this is a scaling strategy. This is a population-level impact. But what was the difference was a system orientation where – Let's look at the local system and figure out what makes sense for them. And what works in Louisville may not work in New York, may not work in Chicago, because there's going to be different tools. So finding, you know, the answer is probably the wrong strategy. You know, if they show you the way, run away. (laughs) Um, And that's kind of been my philosophy of life. 
So just let me, I, I, you, you touched on so many interesting things there. I want to stay just for a second on, on corporate, on the corporate part, because there's been so much sturm and drong around that area. Um, so I'm just curious, because, because you have so much experience in the corporate world, do you, I, I, just for what it's worth, totally agree that we should be bringing mindfulness into corporations because more mindfulness, well, we should be bringing contemplative tools into uh, corporations because more mindfulness, more compassion, more uh, uh, time for contemplation, more uh, health, uh, healthy living is better than less. There's no question about that in my mind. But but from the side of the critics who worry about uh, about this stuff being co-opted by corporations, I just wonder what you would say to them. And do you think it ha- these tools have the potential for making businesses more ethical in the world? In the world, not only to their employees, but in the way they behave in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll take it backwards maybe, but um, I absolutely have seen people potentially operate more ethically and, and uh, uh, open to working with others as a team um, who have some of these skills, and people notice that. Um, there's two two things that you said in the business um, orientation uh, for contemplation that um, – you know, people who one think it's co-opting um, some of the traditions. Tough, um, <laughs> and, and, and to my mind, it's it's um, a small group um, of the pure Buddhists who kind of like say, "Hey, we're supposed to be on a path to enlightenment, and you know, this is a tradition, and you need to go sit with a master, and you need to go, you know, long-term retreats, and you have to." follow a whole, whole particular path. And I have not seen that um, be actually a problem um, in the business side. I haven't seen individuals um, who uh, who deviate from that and focus just on one particular tradition. Um, you know, we have investment in our investor group called Happify, and it's meant to be a curator, you know, for bringing tools and techniques to others and let them pick. Um, same with Wanderlust and Krasno, what, Dick, what Jeff Krasno, who's the CEO there, is trying to trend to do as well. So using the kind of business tools to bring these ideas to the world, um, people seem to be pretty open to them. So there's certain small traditions that say, I, I follow, follow, always follow this path. I remember I was working with one woman who uh, uh, is awesome, um, who was working on yoga and saying, you know, yoga freed me. It, it solved my pain. I used to be, you know, have horrible back pain and kind of create. And so this particular Batavi Joyce tradition is exactly what you should be doing. And I'll set up centers and everybody. And you kind of go, oh, my God. Here's somebody who's had a great experience who's trying to sell the answer that she's achieved to others. I think that is a little scary and that does scare people because all of a sudden that becomes – Almost religious in, in its, its um, um, energy and in saying saying sell, selling an answer. So I think there's a little bit of scariness in that. And when companies see it and others see it, if if the CEO is trying to sell one thing or one way, um, but then I haven't. Uh, um, no matter where we've gone in healthcare, in education, in business, for sure, um, I have seen none of that. I've seen no you know fright and fear. There's actually a lot of curiosity and, and understand a business environment, particularly in the younger um, growing companies. They all want to be sponges for innovation and ideas. And so they'll try a lot of different things and they'll stop things that don't work. But then they'll 
really adopt things that do. And so you're seeing in Silicon Valley, you're seeing it here down in, in, in uh, the Flatiron District and rest of New York. You know, if you're 35 and younger, you're doing all of this. In fact, you don't know anybody that isn't doing all of this. And I don't care if it's in New York or Chicago or St. Louis. We've seen it in Birmingham, Alabama. It's, just, it's everywhere. And so then how do you start bringing these tools in, I think, is the question. So the small arguments over, gee, you know, it's not so perfect. You know, let's, let's not bring it out. Let's not offer it as pieces. Um, I think the pieces are, are good tools. I think that's how you start changing the world slightly and slowly. My great uh, Machiavellian plot is to have people working together for things and they get used to it so much that they can't do it any other way. And so build these teams, you know, have them experience some success and failure, have them sit with each other and be quiet. Um, I have, uh, I did a TEDx talk a couple weeks ago and right at the end of it, I said, okay, we're going to experience, you know, this kind of ensemble of change because I was talking about system change and, and building, working ensembles. So I said, okay, we're going to hum together. And so we as the audience hummed together. I said, that's an experience. You're present, you're connected, you've just experienced the meditation. And it is. It's performing together. It's bringing that musical experience together. It's, it's that kind of energy that I love to support and have people experience. And when they do that, they're open to most things. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on Wallet Happy 
Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. You have this huge emphasis on teamwork, doing things together. I think anybody who's been listening to what you've been saying thus far will have heard it. Why is that so important to you? There's an energy around it that drives me, that that keeps me going. Um, That ensemble, working on puzzles together, we created these ideas called Jeffersonian Dinners where you have a whole table conversation. I can't stand... 15 people at a table that are all talking to the person next to them and having no integrated conversation. It just bothers me because there's so many great minds around the table that could be talking about something uh, interesting. I don't care. Talk about your favorite music and talk about the film, but also maybe talk about how we're bringing these tools of contemplation to lower stress in the world. That's a more interesting experience for me, and I've come and become – truly addicted to it, but it was also why I was successful as an investor. For 25 years, we built these ensembles, these partnerships with CEOs and others to create value and create value in their teams. And so it's something that I started in seventh grade playing music and continue to evolve um, to today. And when I was talking to um, uh, our friend Sharon Salzberg, we bring, I brought her up several different times. She's such an amazing uh, spirit. And um, she said, you know, Jeff, we forgot to bring Sangha to the West. Define Sangha for people. And Sangha is a Buddhist term of, there's lots of different other terms for this, but, you know, of a group of people who work together, who talk with each other, who are mirrors to each other. And in my mind, you can't find yourself without reflecting off the mirror of another. And the better and more clear that mirror is, the more you're going to see yourself. And so you can go in the cave all your life and continue to practice your the wrong golf swing. <laughs> it just won't work. But others kind of like, you know, it's you're here's how you're coming across. And so what's what what Sharon said, uh, you know, is that in the east they had sanghas, they had groups of people that actually connected with each other. And here in the west we had churches and we had, you know, groups that were naturally connected, rotary and, and other things, and we've been losing that. And she said, you know, when we came in the early 70s to the U.S., we talked about this self-inquiry approach, and John Kabat-Zinn had an amazing mindfulness-based stress management program. But we forgot to teach the group. We forgot to teach bringing others together and having stable. And he said, we forgot because we had it naturally. So Sharon had it with Joseph Goldstein. She had it with John Kabat-Zinn. She had it. It was there. She said, we just thought it was normal. Let me just jump in for a second because I just want to make sure people know who you're talking about. You're talking about the group of people who really brought meditation to the West in the 70s primarily, and they include people like Sharon Salzberg, very prominent teacher, previous guest on this podcast, Joseph Goldstein, also a very prominent teacher, happens to be my teacher, John Kabat-Zinn, who invented mindfulness-based stress reduction, really has been a huge force in bringing mindfulness out into the secular world. These people were all hanging out together. They did have their own little group. Uh, and they started teaching meditation, but uh, I think the way it's happened, and I agree with you, is we've all gone off and just done it in our bedrooms, but we don't really do it as a group. Well, you do it as a group, and I find that that's a different experience. Actually, meditating or doing yoga or anything else as part of uh, with others, even being quiet with others, you know, in a vipassana practice, 
that's a different experience than being by yourself in your room, as you say. I think both are good, but you need both. And then actually having a group of people you can talk to, to actually call and say, I'm not getting this, or life is hard right now. Um, let me talk about my practice, or let me talk about what I'm doing, and practice isn't working as well. Hmm. I seem to be thinking a whole lot, you know, and what do you, what do you think about that? Or I'm not, I'm not sleeping well, you know, how do I start building, building that back, uh, building my practice back? Or, I, or I've, I've stopped doing it for a couple of weeks, you know, hmm, it's frustrating. I need somebody to remind me that it's important. So um, I, and this, with the social media world and others, we're, we're starting to explore and find ways to allow people to find others and connect. And not just online, um, but to find others that they can connect with and come together with. But then my challenge is, and you and I have talked about this before, is, is how do you then build that into your schedule? How do you build that time with others into your schedule when you got a wife and kids and you know you've got a lot of work and and so that is a really interesting thing to explore whether it's in the business world or nursing or schools is how to build the time in and if you do in my experience it's going to leverage your output impact joy in life um, and if you forget it and you stop doing it, then it stops, starts going away. So having others to remind you and then actually others to say you're not crazy. Um, and I think in the early 70s, I so admire all that, all, all that crew that came in and kind of said, hey, there's a really interesting practice. But I think they all helped each other stay aligned. You know, Danny Goldman kind of writing about emotional intelligence and others. He was part of that group. And, he, and Sharon would help him going, it's okay, Danny, you know, keep, keep going. This is a good thing. Uh, you mentioned – I didn't have plan on going here, but you mentioned it, so I think it's worth going there. You talked about the, the challenge of scheduling. I think not only do people have trouble scheduling uh, – there's a bigger problem than scheduling uh, time to get together as a group. A lot of people have t- trouble, and I hear this all the time, finding time to meditate. I hear this all the time. You know, I get it. It's good for you, but I just can't. My wife says this. Uh, my wife sees that it's made her husband less obnoxious and that and she's a scientist and she looks at the science and she sees that there's pretty strong evidence that it has a long list of tantalizing health benefits and yet struggles to find the time to do it. And I say this without judgment because she, I see how busy she is and she, frankly she does most of the work with our two-year-old. So I have no judgment of her for this, but I wonder what any if you have any wisdom to bring to bear for those who may be listening to this and thinking, yeah, I just can't find the time to meditate. Yeah. Um, there's, there's part of it that's um, – is that the goal is to always find time to meditate and then you live life? Or is it to integrate everything we're learning into life? And there was a, um, a great teacher, um, Jeffrey Hopkins, who was the Dalai Lama's interpreter for a while. I was at University of Virginia and I was talking to him. And I would say uh, – I, I said, so – how many times a day do you meditate? He goes, oh, I don't know, seven. I go, wow. How long? I don't know, a minute. And he says, it's not like I don't have longer meditations. I said, but I'm trying to remind myself where I need to come back to as I'm living life. And to remind ourselves that there's every breath you're taking, if you feel yourself going into stress, you say, hmm. Let's take a minute, you know. Let's think about 
that little meditation I can do. And Sharon Salzberg has a, a great uh, uh, street mindfulness um, set of videos that are nothing but reminding us that if we're in line, could you get a coffee? Maybe meditate. If you're walking down the street, maybe do an open awareness saying, what's around me? Um, as opposed to holding your cell phone and trying to type in while you're walking, put it away and, and be quiet a little bit. And so finding that time um, is easier, in my experience, than uh, necessarily, gee, do I need to do an hour in the morning and how do I really have to get up? But then I have to exercise too and then I got to get the kids. I'm like, oh, my God. And then it starts that, that list. Now, if you can build into your schedule, which I totally recommend, some period of time where you are quiet, great. Absolutely. Um, that's important. And the science all says that's the neurons will be changed by that long-term practice. But it's also some science saying you can practice doing a walking meditation and you can practice, you know, by taking a breath in the middle of a negotiation where you're high stress. And that that's credit. Give you credit for that. Yeah. No, I, I used to be really dogmatic about um, you, you can't integrate it into your life unless you have a base of formal practice. Um, but now that I have a company that's teaching people how to meditate and one of the, this app, the, um, the, I'm hearing from people all the time that you know, we've identified as a corporation the four secret fears that stop people from meditating or mess up their practice. And one of them is this time issue. And I've really started to change my views on this, that if you can start, maybe you can start by just integrating it into your walk to work or your wait for a coffee and maybe you can also do some formal one, two, or three-minute long meditations instead of trying to dive in with 30 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day. I, mean, yeah. I, I began with the recommendation that five to ten minutes a day is enough, and I, I still believe that. But maybe, you know, uh, if you do one minute every third day and are just making an effort to be more mindful as you walk or as you wait or in the middle of conversations with people, maybe that's the beginning of growing something. Or maybe that's just good enough. I don't know. I, I, I'm really – my thoughts are really forming. Or when you're – there's over 60 million people who are doing yoga right now. How many of them are in mindful states when they're doing yoga? <laughs> I don't some know. are. Yeah, some, some. There's a set yeah. that – absolutely. Yeah. And the purpose of yoga was for meditation. That was what it was originally set up to do is to get your mind into that present state. So – what if you're just doing yoga and said, mm, at least 15 minutes out of my hour yoga session, I'm going to really be present. I'm going to really be in a position that I'm just going to go there. I'm going to center myself. I give you credit. That's credit for contemplation, yes. you know, yes. for me. Yes. Um, go for that. Yes. And so, you know, thinking about how bringing these ideas out, I mean, I think the 10% Happier site's brilliant. I mean, you guys have this, this individual that checks in on how you're doing. I mean, that's yeah, a real, a real innovation, yeah, your coach. Yeah. And so, you know, we used to be investors in, in Headspace and, and we sold our investment just because we didn't think it was evolving to where it needed to go. And I think you guys have hit on, you know, some of the things that you need to do, which is having a person that you talk to and connect with, right, as, well, as well as a, a more integrated uh, um, practice. I think that's part of making time. That's part of reinforcing when people were uh, – Judd Brewer, who's a, a researcher at the uh, University of Massachusetts, and I've been supporting in, in a lot of his research at Yale, and then now University of Massachusetts is doing addiction therapy. And he's got a, a great app that's uh, focused on uh, smoking. 
and getting you know getting uh, getting off of uh, that, that addiction. Yeah, craving to quit. It's a great. It's great craving to quit. And so um, so Judd's kind of been working on this kind of theory as to how do you start building yourself away from these addictive practices, and it's through mindfulness work, and it's through reinforcement of others saying you're achieving the goal together. Weight yeah. Watchers is the same thing, mm-hmm. right? This this team effort that's groups. And so you say I keep coming back to the team because I don't see any other way out of this. I don't see any other way because of the stress of this election and what we're all working on. And it's, we're all having to recenter ourselves back to our core teams, our core groups of people that we know are still there, right, are mm-hmm. still going to work. We're going to work together, right, to, to lower suffering in the world. And we're, we're still doing this now. Even though we've got somebody else in office, um, and we're going, yep, it's okay. We're rebuilt. We're rebasing ourselves, right? In that stress, so I, I go back to that that team approach because without it, I'd be scared. What is your personal practice? What is your daily practice, or whatever? What? Because what, I, I know we talked about your eclecticism, yeah, yeah. so and I know a little bit about what you do. But can you can you share it with the rest of us? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> It's an eclectic approach <laughs> because I give myself credit. So I give myself credit for – I usually meditate late at night. You know, I, I have, My intention was to start in the early morning because I thought that was a really good thing. But then I have my – I have exercise or do something else. And so late at night, my, my wife tends to go to sleep and my, I have older kids and so they're out of the house now. And so that's the quiet time for me because I don't, I don't sleep that much. And so it's like you know, let's, let's experience the quietness there or listen to a, a meditation um, – Learning for a guy named Reggie Ray now about somatic, you know, let's, let's figure out what the body meditation is, and so I'll I'll do some of that. Um, I do yoga mm, three times a week at least an hour, and uh, uh, have a, a trainer that helps me do uh, do that uh, and keep on 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 target and online. And I try to be mindful during that entire practice. Um, I'll have done tai chi for extended periods of time, and we'll cycle in and out of that. And then I do retreat. I retreat. Um, at least twice a year, um, somewhere, and I usually mix it up. So I'll do a Zen Buddhist retreat, or I'll do a Vipassana, or I'll do loving kindness with with uh, up in IMS uh, Insight, Insight Meditation yes, yeah. uh, Society up in Massachusetts, which I think is awesome. Um, or I'll do it down to Virginia, Yogaville, or you know, oh, um, different kinds of practices there. And then I try to every minute be present. And thinking through that. And then I also, again, this is too much, but I see live music probably twice a week. And there's something about sitting, listening to live music that my mind does something else. It connects in a different way. And it's a slightly more creative place, um, more present place. So, you know, I, I do that too. So, yes, it's, it's, it's eclectic. And, you know, I wish I had – and then we do – I have groups of people we connect with and, you know, some of them are friends of yours and mine and, and so we'll get together but not regularly enough. Um, but we all connect with each other by phone, um, by uh, by text or email to kind of reinforce our practices and we do that all the time. Uh, I, what you just described sounds awesome to me for what it's worth. I give you a lot of credit. Okay, um, uh, <laughs> tons of credit coming across the desk at you. Uh, you, you are technically, quote unquote, retired. You stopped, you stepped down from J.P. Morgan a while ago, but you're the busiest retired person I've ever met. <laughs> um, and you're, you, you're doing tons of stuff from 
uh, an enormous amount of philanthropy, but you also, you referenced several minutes ago, your investor group, Bridge Builders, um, which is investing in uh, contemplative technologies, uh, businesses that are giving people contemplative tools. Uh, uh, Can you describe who's involved in this with you and what you guys are doing? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I retired 10 years ago, and you're, you're right. I, my wife says, why do you have to continue to grow? <laughs> I go, well, I don't know. I'm like a shark. I have to keep going, you know, but it's really fun. So one of the things we did was say um, there's a group of, of um, guys. We need some. We need to actually find some women. Um, but guys who kind of said they're in their second careers. They want to do good for the world. We were all investors of some shape or form, and – um, Scott Krenz and I first first connected, and he's building uh, Multiversity, which is an amazing. Now um, he he's best known for uh, did, w- what businesses was Scott in Broadcom, and having being CEO of a very high tech business that uh, very successful, and so he, uh, um, you know, has a really important focus on bringing people together. How do you start building um, tools for people to achieve? Um, more effective results together, um, teamwork, and so he uh, um, was interested in funding some of these. And yes. some of the some of the other guys involved are Austin Hurst of the Austin Hurst, Hurst is a Hurst, Hurst Foundation, family. Hurst family, and uh, Scott Beck in in Colorado, who um, was very successful franchisee, Blockbuster, and a bunch of others. And uh, uh, we've got a, a guy we've hired, uh, Charlie Hartwell, who is our collaborative glue. He yes. holds us together. Yeah, I need to have Charlie on the podcast. He's all, uh, through you. He's become a friend of mine. Um, he's a, a great guy. Uh, so you talk 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 about what the mission is of Bridge. So Builders. we want to focus on things that are related to mind training, to um, building better relationships, um, and using the tools of um, mindfulness to to reduce suffering. Um, and so we found uh, Headspace, and we're seed investors there. So we invested in something called Happify, which is a curated site for these kind of tools and practices. And it started out in, in uh, uh, using some of the University of Pennsylvania's positive psychology strategies, and then we kind of sat with them, and they talked a lot of things, uh, saying, you know, there's more than that. There's more tools than that. So let's open up and say they have. and. Now they're serving the business world, so it's a, a B2B kind of strategy. We also invested in uh, Muse Interaxon, which is a headset that measures your brainwaves and gives you biofeedback because that's another tool, seeing how busy is your brain and let me have some biofeedback to recognize when I'm settling my mind. Oh, gee, that's working, so I'll do that more often, and maybe we can achieve some of the more mindful practices more effectively if we have that feedback mechanism. We have eMindful. eMindful is a a site that uses online learning, but live interaction. So you have 40 people and you're going to work on uh, weight management. Or you're going to work on stress, um, your tools of leadership. And they sell that through Aetna, for example. So Aetna uses them for their own employees, but then now is selling that product to other companies. So there's another B2B strategy by bringing these tools and practices that have return on investment calculations linked to them, $33,000 a person at uh, Aetna for using these practices. They reduce um, sickness. They reduce, reduce turnover. Lots of lots of good things happen for it. So looking at and we have something else called pair technologies, which is rather than your doctor giving you the Ambien prescription by itself, he gives you another piece of paper that says, and there's some practices you can do to manage stress and to manage sleep. Maybe you should pair these together. Mm. 
And the drug companies are interested in actually pairing it together because they have claims of, of um, over, you know, drugging people and also um, potentially extending their patent lives. And so the FDA is near approval of this process, and so taking it down that path and getting FDA to kind of say this is a really good thing. So, and there's we're, we're looking at a bunch of others, but so thinking about this space, we're finding more and more people interested in investing. More adventure guys are investing in, in things like Ten uh, Percent Happier, and, and uh, which we hope someday we'll be able to invest in you all. Um, is 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 finding these applications that are health applications and are helping people adopt practices that will make them, make them happier. And if we can use some of these tools and practices so that people are armed with those tools, then this is going to be a better place. And arming you know, people before they need it is, or at least knowing that they have tools before they need it, is a much better place than when they're in the middle of suffering and they're trying to give them these tools. And we're, we're doing that at the University of Virginia I'm on the board of Virginia, and um, you know, there's a lot of suffering in, in higher ed. There's a lot of suffering in colleges. There's sexual violence. There's uh, addiction issues. There's, there's alcoholism. There's stress of performance and what classes they want to take. They don't have the tools. They've never been taught any of these tools in an organized way. And so we have a joint venture with University of Virginia and University of Wisconsin and Penn State to actually help bring these tools to higher ed world. Not just one university. Let's like, let's start bringing this curriculum in. Let's work with the advisor groups at these schools. And so when people show up, maybe we'll give them some videos ahead of time so that they know that there's this thing called mindfulness. There's this yoga opportunity. There's this stress management. There's a thing you can go to. There's some groups you can get together with. So we're in the middle of thinking through that with others, with other schools, research level one universities, because every school is suffering. So that's the case almost everywhere. And so the fun part about what our investor group is doing, and we also do philanthropy together as well, Austin Hurst and I are doing some really great work in, in uh, global health, is finding these things that we can go and bear down on. So whether it's demographic populations like K through 5 in you know schools um, or whether it's higher ed or whether it's the business world, or and find people to help support. You know, and one of my real joys is finding people who I can back to go even more deeply in the areas that I think have potential for change. And I call them system entrepreneurs. We're studying what they are. This is as opposed to a social entrepreneur who's creating the great new NGO. There's also system entrepreneurs who are helping pull together solutions for malaria, for community health worker strategies, for modern slavery, for ending neglected diseases. Now we're finding these people who actually have contemplative experiences, almost all of them do, saying, how do I have a managed ego to be able to pull together these collaborations? How do I have great listening skills so I can listen? Actually, it's a skill to not know everything. Huh. How does that work? How do I go to beginner's mind? And so we're starting to have this group of people who now have these contemplative tools who are pulling together these great collaborations to solve the problems of the world. Isn't that cool? Yes. You use the term managed ego. I love that. I've, you've been using that for years. I've, I'm, I, it would be a great book title at some point. Um, <laughs> where can people learn more about you? You've written a book. Can you tell us what that is? What, do you have a website? Is there any, uh, as we close here, I just want to give people resources if they want to learn more about you. Sure. 
The Generosity Network is a book that we, uh, Jennifer McRae and myself, um, co-wrote, and we have as a class at uh, Kennedy School at Harvard now. And it's about this transformational experience between donors and doers when you do something together. Your life is transformed. It's not money going one way or the other. It's about the transformational opportunity that we can bring to every nonprofit and every major cause in the world to uh, build teams. Two is um, I've written a lot about, and you can see it on uh, Harvard Business Review. There's some uh, information on systems change. We'll see more coming out of that right now. We, uh, um, my LinkedIn site, feel free to go on LinkedIn and, and can type me up, and then you can connect with me there as well. And we do have a site called the Generosity Network as well. Jeffrey Walker, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.